excited for what God has for us through you this morning. Take it away. Thanks, John. Um, good morning, everybody. I do want to start by waving at my mom. You know how you do at um, the Christmas carols normally at school? Hi, ma'am. Thank you for mom and dad being here this morning. It's both an honor and a privilege, obviously, to have them with us. They visit Anthem pretty much twice a year, Easter and Christmas. And Sheldon preached and they came, and I preached and they came, so they're doing double the amount of visits this year. So, um, so a few years ago, I was on the beach with some friends, and we suddenly realized one of the kids was missing. Not mine. I wasn't yet married or had kids. One of the friend's um, children was missing. So we started searching for this boy. Of course, panic set in. We think the worst. He's definitely drowned in the ocean. We started shouting his name all over, carried on looking up and down the beach, had people pretty much searching with us through the clubhouse that we were nearby. Went into the parking lot and shouted his name, and suddenly there was this little quaint voice from the window going, Mom, I'm in the toilet. <laughs> Found, albeit in the toilet. Fast forward a few years, Sheldon and I took the kids to the Berg um, on a camping trip to a campsite that we hadn't actually ever been to. And while we were setting up, the little biker gang came through, and both our kids at the time were under five. Um, but the biker gang asked if they could join them to ride around the campsite. Of course, we let them go with the proviso that they'd be back before sunset. Unfortunately, what we didn't realize is that at sunset in the Berg, like everywhere else in the Berg, it's as if someone has turned the lights off. And we couldn't find the kids. Of course, panic set in. For me, I started panicking. I thought they don't know where we are. They've never been to this campsite before. They don't know how to find their way back to our tent. Um, there's a swamp nearby, and I thought definitely Jed had, would have tried to get Ella back, and they would have drown in the swamp. So we went racing around the campsite, got in my car, drove to the bottom part of the campsite, got the teenagers on their bicycles with their head torches looking all over. I think they thought it was quite an adventure. And then all of a sudden, along come two little oblivious of any panic Stevensons. Two tents down, visiting new friends that they had found, and just sauntered back into the campsite. Needless to say, we were not overly happy with them. But they were found, although they were completely unaware of the fact that they had been lost. You see, friends, most people don't realize that they're lost until somebody's looking for them. And I just realized that the other day, like, are we searching for anybody? So the scripture that I've chosen of the encounter with Jesus is one where Jesus actually seems to be unaware that he's lost as well. We pick the story up in Luke 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to their custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for, on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem, for looking, uh, Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, I think by then you would have had to have me in a straitjacket, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard them was amazed at his understanding and his answers, but his parents, much like Sheldon and I responded to our kids, so when they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. To which Jesus replied, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them, and they, went, they then went back down to Nazareth with him, and, and he was obedient to them. 
His mom treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Found, but in the perfect place this time, in his father's house. What do we have access to in your father's house, friends? Sons and daughters have free access to everything in the father's house that visitors and guests don't. No matter what your refrigerator rights are in friends' homes, you don't have the same privileges and access that you do in your father's house. This morning, Campbell, not to embarrass you, but arrived as a visitor. He ran in. I was standing out at the front door. He ran in and he said to Cheryl, I'm a visitor. I'm first. Am I allowed to park inside? And I was just standing in worship thinking, how many of us are like that as visitors? We don't actually even know if we can park inside. We just drive in here. We don't even think twice about coming in here because this is home for us. My dad has a, a tool room, which I love, and um, I have full access to, much to his delight. Um, but visitors come and they don't just get to walk in and, and have that same kind of access. Sheldon and I have recently finished watching the series, The Thai Cave Rescue, which is the story based around those soccer, soccer boys in 2018 in Thailand that went into the cave and, and got stuck there. Pretty much we've held our breath for watching the series for six hours um, throughout the series. But these boys are lost. They don't know whether they've turned left or right in the cave. When they get the divers in, they're not really sure if they are even still alive. But this UK diver pops out of the water nine days after these boys have gone missing. And these boys, they just see this light coming out of the, out of the water. And the one boy says to the diver, where are you from? The diver says, I'm from the UK. And the boy says to him, are you lost? <laughs> so he says, uh, no, you are. Later on, that same diver says to the coach, you've saved these boys. Now we've got to figure out how to rescue them. And as we watched that, I said to Sean, push, pause, push, pause. It's part of a preach. I can use it. Um, because as I said that, it made me realize Jesus has saved so many of us. But there's parts of our lives that have not yet been rescued as well as there's people around us who have been saved and, and are not yet rescued. So that part is found, but not yet rescued. If we follow Jesus, we've been saved, but every single part of our body and our lives needs to be rescued, which includes our position. The meaning of to be found in the dictionary is to be in a particular position or place. To be lost doesn't only mean the place that, uh, that our place could be lost, but our position as well. So many of us live our lives in a position of guilt, condemnation, and even regret. But God says, find yourself as a son or daughter, living with free access to all that the Father has to offer. Oblivious to the fact that so many of us are lost, we find ourselves very often in places that we should not be found. Where will you be found today, friends? Will you be found unaware of needing rescue? Will you be found in the Father's house? Or will you at least realize your need for a Savior? Thank you. This is Jared. He's one of our youth leaders, and it's the first time he's worn shoes this year. Uh, I said to the guys on Thursday night, uh, guys, dress code, just one thing, wear shoes. Standard, standard protocol. He arrived to pre-meeting this morning, jeans. No shoes. I'm like, dude, you're joking. You had, one, you had one thing. They were sitting in the car. They were waiting just for the last minute to be put on. But uh, Jared is a man who loves Jesus and he loves people. And uh, he takes care of our youth along, alongside Willem and Cam. And uh, he's getting married in the new year. 
And uh, we've got, we're excited to hear what God does. Hit it. Thanks, John. Um, <laughs> just got to get it out of the way. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to read some scripture, and then I've got three points to share with you guys, and that should be my time. Cool. I'm going to dive into scripture, Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter cried, tell me to come out on the water. Come, Jesus says. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt me? And then, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The first point I'd like to talk about is the, the faith that Peter had. He was sitting in the boat, and he recognized Jesus. He said, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out on the water. I don't think he was expecting Jesus to say, come, but thankfully, his faith was greater than his doubt or his fear. So, he stepped out of the boat. And here is the first, the focus of my first point, is that when we have faith in Jesus, we are stepping out of our boats in confidence, full of trust in Jesus. Where Peter makes his mistake is he shifts his focus from Jesus to the storm. When I shift my focus from Jesus to the storm, I'm taking that step without faith. Inevitably, I'm going to sink. But if my focus is on Jesus, then even though it looks like I'm stepping onto water, which is unstable and shaky footing, it turns into a solid and firm foundation on which, through faith, I can walk into the direction and the calling that I'm called to. My second point is, Jesus asks Peter, why did you doubt? I can only imagine the mix of emotions that Peter must have been feeling. He's just walked on water. It must have been crazy for him. And now Jesus, his friend, his teacher, and his Lord is asking him, why did you doubt? This is the way we are as humans. The beautiful part about this is that despite Peter's doubt and despite the disciples' doubt, Jesus still calms the storm. When they enter into the boat, the storm is calmed and the wind dies down. God's love for us goes beyond our doubt. Yes, faith is still required, but our faith is not disqualified if we are overwhelmed by the storm of life. The last point I'd like to talk about comes from verse 33, where it says, Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
We are called to a life of faith, trusting in God in all seasons of life, trusting that we are saved by grace. When we are called to step out of our boats and onto the waters, I am empowered and full of confidence and full of faith. If I do it, I feel my faith rise and my relationship with God is strengthened. It encourages me to trust more and to allow God to lead me through more storms and through more stormy waters into his kingdom. Yet more than this, it is the encouragement that my faith and my journey gives to others. As we see in the scripture, Peter's faith and his actions leads his friends and his disciples to worship Jesus, declaring that he is the Son of God. I can only imagine what the atmosphere on that boat must have felt like. These disciples, these people have been with Jesus and have seen all the miracles, and now all of that is being reassured as one of their friends walks on water and Jesus calms a storm. This is what we can do with our faith, and this is how we can build others up to follow Jesus. We can take a step and leave the comfort of our boat, or even the discomfort of our boat, to walk on the water into greater things. Yes, maybe harder things and more challenging, th challenging things, but greater things nonetheless. What others see is that God is faithful, reliable, dependable, and above all, loving and generous towards us with his thoughts. A beautiful story from my life that reminds me of this is when I was living in Mauritius and I was going to school, uh, my friend started a prayer group, which was cool, but at our school, it was kind of against the rules to share or display what your belief is or what your religion is to anyone. We, we could have gotten expelled, and yet my friend was so full of faith and so trusting in God that he went ahead and started this prayer group anyway. And I was so inspired. I saw this and my faith was risen. It, was, it grew and I thought to myself, I want to be a part of this. So I joined the prayer group and in that season, my faith grew and my relationship with God was strengthened and I felt courageous and as I grew in that season. My friend was like Peter. He stepped out of the boat and he trusted God as he started that prayer group. And when I saw that, I was led and inspired to faith and trust in God. To close, my step of faith creates a testimony, a sign of what Jesus is like in all stages and phases of life. That testimony is towards his faithfulness. And its ultimate purpose is to lead others to life. Thanks, Jared. This is Jada. Jada is also one of our youth leaders, and she helps lead worship, and she helps with kids, and she helps in the front office, and she helps with Project Exodus, and she's studying at the same time. And uh, the thing that qualifies Jada is that she, she has uh, overcome a few storms in her life. She's walked with Jesus through a few storms, and she loves Jesus through it, and she loves people through it. So Jada, take it away. 
Hi, church. I'm really excited and grateful to be sharing today. The encounter I'm going to be sharing on is one that's ministered to me deeply over the last few months and one I hope ministers to you today, and it's the encounter of Peter walking on water with Jesus. In Matthew 14, it says this, Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? If we want to know what allowed Peter to walk on water, then we need to know what led to Peter walking on water, because context is everything. When we look a few verses back, we see that this encounter came off of the back of great joys and great victories. I mean, one of Jesus' biggest miracles of his ministry took place during that time, but it also came on the back of great loss and great sadness. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had been beheaded, it says this in Matthew. As soon as Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. At this point, I can imagine the disciples and Jesus being tired. They're weary. They're grieving. They just want to be alone. And yet Jesus, moved by a heart of compassion, heals the sick. Maybe you're here today and you're tired, you're weary, you just want to be alone, and you're not sure how God can use you in this space. I want to encourage you and remind you that it's not about what we have in our hands, but the attitude we come with in our heart. Jesus was tired, he was weary, and yet moved by a heart of compassion, he was able to serve God. I'm not saying that we should consistently be living in the red and always be tired, but I am saying in, in that space, Jesus can still use us because our attitude determines the measure with which God can use us. Picture this. The disciples are in the boat. They're being tossed around by the storm, and suddenly they see a man walking towards them. I'm not sure if there was a hectic haze or if it was still too early, or maybe they were tired and it was impacting their ability to see clearly. But something made it difficult for the disciples to identify Jesus. In order for the disciples to trust that it was Jesus walking towards them, they would have had to have been able to distinguish and know his voice, and they would have had to have been able to trust that he was who he said he was. You see, Jesus chose to reveal himself to the disciples in such a way and at such a time where they were aware of his presence, but not of who it was that was with them. In the middle of their storm, Jesus was testing how well they knew his voice and whether they trusted him. Sometimes when we're going through storms and our ability to see clearly is impacted, and all we have to go off of is Jesus' voice to have faith. If the disciples hadn't spent as much time with Jesus as they had before the storm, they wouldn't have been able to recognize Jesus' voice during the storm. The amount of time we spend with God is directly proportionate to our ability to know and see His goodness and provision throughout our lives. When we look at the exact moment that Peter walked on water, it says this, Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. 
Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Recently, I had an experience where I was trusting God for something, and I ended up looking at the obstacles to my journey and ended up sinking into a panic and doubt, much like Peter, and decided that the best way to fix it was to make a cup of tea. So I'm in the kitchen making a cup of tea in the office, and I realized that I'd walked into a biblical debate between some of the guys. And one of the guys starts reading this exact encounter. And as he gets to the last line where Jesus confronts Peter's doubt, it felt as though God was speaking to me directly, and it hit me. What caused Peter to sink was not necessarily that he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the storm. It's that he limited Jesus to the size of his problem. You see, Jesus doesn't say, you have so little faith, why did you look at the storm? No, he says, you have so little faith, why did you doubt me? In that moment, Peter forgot about the Jesus that had raised a little girl from the dead. He forgot about the Jesus that had gotten him thus far. Instead, he saw a small God in a big storm, not a big God in a small storm. Friends, it's not about what we see. What matters is who we know. We see that Peter's encounter is marked by a heart moved by compassion, by his ability to know and trust the voice of God, and by who he knew, not what we saw. I encourage us to spend time with God, learn his voice, and remember it's not about what we see, it's about who we know, and we know a powerful God. Thank you. This is Nix. Nix uh, also leads us in worship. Um, one of the, what qualifies Nix is not that she's a mother, it's not that she's a wife. It's that she is a person who searches the scriptures, who has followed God for years, and uh, is full of faith, and who loves people. And so hit us. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Have you ever been so excited to host some guests at your house that you are literally pulling out every single valuable thing that you own? You want to make a good impression. I'm sure many of you have heard about the consecrated cutlery that we own in our home. Or have you ever been so impacted by somebody's life that when it comes time for their birthday or a special occasion, you just want to spoil them so, so, so extravagantly because you just want to show them how much you appreciate them? So this is what happened in our encounter with Jesus that we're going to look at today. You see, there was a woman who had heard about Jesus. He'd been causing quite a stir through, through the towns, performing many miracles, so many, pretty much everybody had heard about him. And she'd also heard that he was going to be visiting the home of a very prominent man within the community. His name was Simon. He was a proud man who, I believe, was actually just inviting Jesus over to his house because he wanted to be seen doing the right thing. He was a man that, that loved status, that went after that, and so he wanted to be able to name drop and say, well, I had Jesus in my home. So picture it, okay? She hears that Jesus is coming to Simon the Pharisee's house, and she thinks that her presence alone is not going to be enough. So she goes rummaging through her cupboard to try and find a gift, a something that she can give to him, that she can show how much she loves him. And she finds a jar of expensive perfume. It's worth, the Bible says, about a year's wages. And we're going to pick up in Luke 7 from verse 36. 
it says, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This woman's story reminds me a lot of that song that we sing. It goes like this, Jesus, we love you. Do you know that song? The bridge, I love the words of the bridge. It says, our affection, our devotion poured out on the feet of Jesus. And these lyrics actually bring such a lump to my throat when I think about them. Because I can just imagine this broken, sinful woman who'd been shamed by society bringing herself and the best thing that she possibly owned And not knowing if it would be enough, but desperately hoping that it would be, and coming to pour it out on the feet of Jesus. She'd probably heard about Jesus. She'd heard him preaching on the streets before she knew him from what she'd seen of him. And in front of all the guests, she knelt. She knelt at his feet. She wept, and she worshipped him because she recognized, she recognized who he was. This woman had nothing to lose. This woman was a prostitute and a woman of ill repute. Some of the scholars say that this was actually Mary Magdalene. She was already an outcast in the eyes of every guest in the house. Her reputation preceded her. But she understood that she needed to bring herself and her worship to Jesus. Now, on the other hand, we have Simon. Simon judged this woman because he knew her lifestyle. And I think that he probably judged Jesus for allowing her to get that close to him. It says in verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. But listen to how clever Jesus is. He says, he asks Simon if you'd like to hear a story. And He proceeds to talk about money lending and debt being written off. And I think that Jesus used this analogy because he realized that money and status were something that Simon was clinging to 
that he clung to. So he, he knew he had to get on the same wavelength as him. But, so I can just imagine, okay, Jesus sitting there, he's told this story, and then he silently looks at the woman, and then he looks at Simon, as if to say, like, do you get it? Do you get what I'm trying to say? But Simon doesn't get it. He's completely oblivious. And so Jesus changes tactics, and he just goes straight to the point. And he essentially says, okay, do you see this woman? This is, this is who I'm talking about. He says, you look at her, and all you see is her sin. I look at her, and all I see is a daughter who wants to, in the words of the song, pour out her devotion and her affection on me. Then in verse 47, he says, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The message translation puts it like this. It says, If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. You know, this morning when I was reading over this story again, and I was actually listening to that song, Gratitude, that we sang, I just felt God drop into my heart that forgiveness is never minimal. So gratitude should never be minimal. Forgiveness is, it's, it's expensive. It costs. It's a big thing. Gratitude should always be to the maximum. should never be minimal. So friends, I want to ask, who are you in this story? I've done some deep soul searching as I've been preparing this. My first off answer was, I'm definitely the woman. Like, uh, you know, I want to always bring my best. I want to pour out my devotion on Jesus. I love to worship him, all of those things. But as I've had some time to reflect I've, and study my own heart, I've realized that in so many ways I'm very much like Simon. I've sat and I've judged. I have looked at other people's lives and I've thought, oh my gosh, I've got so much more together than them. What? They're still stumbling on that thing. Oh my goodness. Or why, why, is that, why does that keep just, you know, why, why is that something that is never disappearing in their life? And in my journey towards becoming more like Jesus, I've actually become a bit self-righteous. So today I'd like to ask us this. Can you recognize yourself in the broken woman worshiping Jesus, but can you also recognize yourself in the man that is clinging to status? Friends, all of us should be able to identify with both of these people, and we should be on a journey from clinging towards status and position to pouring out our worship onto Jesus' feet, regardless of who's watching. Thank you. Can you stand with me, please?